Well, it's a pleasure to be with you again this evening. And no severe storms tonight on this Wednesday night. Yeah, I was almost waiting to see if we got a, an announcement from Buster that church was actually going to happen. <laughs> yes, we've been delayed a little bit, but uh, hopefully the lesson will be just as good as it would have been two weeks ago. <laughs> Before we get started, I just wanted to mention uh, on a personal note, I appreciate so much all of you that have been offering words of encouragement and support to me and my struggle with these headaches that have been ongoing. I really appreciate it, the prayers. It's, uh, you've been great. Hopefully, the next time I speak to you, I'll be healed. we we are, got procedures going here in two weeks, and they're going to try to figure out what's going on and try to fix it at the same two-day period. And uh, got a message email this week from a Christian brother that lifted my spirits. Um, you guys uh, know Jeff Atnip, some of you. Uh, he had an amazing offer. He uh, said, I don't have anything going on that week. I'll drive up there with you, drive back, drive you back, take care of you during the procedures and take me, I'll do all of that stuff. And I said, are you sure you're in for that? <laughs> That's like giving up five days of your life, you know. But he was so kind and gracious to do that, and I, I'm grateful for him doing that. I'd already paid a down payment to my caretaker that was going to take care of it, but that's all right. <laughs> Let her keep that money. I'm glad that uh, Jeff is going to be able to go with me. Well, we are, we've been assigned 10 chapters out of Exodus, from uh, starting in Exodus chapter 5 and going through 14. And I've entitled the lesson, Let My People Go, which is a familiar demand that God gives to Pharaoh during this time. And uh, what I've tried to do is to divide this up into sections and kind of give a a summary in each section. Of course, we won't have time to talk about each verse, but we'll mainly center our thoughts on the ten plagues and the exodus. But in the introduction, I've uh, come up with one of Pharaoh's quotes that he gets when Moses and Aaron confront Pharaoh and ask him if they or demand that they can go out into the wilderness on a three-day journey and have a festival to the Lord. And his response was, who's this Lord you're talking about? Uh, that I should obey him. I don't know him. And of course, that's a legitimate probably uh, response because the real God had uh, not been very well known in Egypt, if at all, at this time. In fact, Pharaoh considered himself a God, right? He's the most powerful ruler of one of the most powerful civilizations at that time. We're not sure exactly which Pharaoh it was. There's a debate about that. If you watch the Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, it was Ramses, wasn't it? But then uh, most scholars now would say maybe it was the Third that was Pharaoh at that time. I, I don't know for sure. But nevertheless, they pretty much had the same attitude, uh, being a descendant of the sun god Ray or Ra. Uh, 
uh, Pharaoh thought he was a god. And uh, so God is going to set up a confrontation, essentially, which is really no contest at all, is it? Between the one who thought he was God and the one who really was God, Yahweh. And uh, God is going to make sure that the Egyptians know who he is and the Israelites know what he can do through these events. So he sets them up with this confrontation. Well, here, in, as we begin chapter 5, we've got this um, request to go into the wilderness and uh, offer sacrifices to the Lord. Moses and Aaron come before Pharaoh, and his answer is, no way. I don't know who your God is, and I'll not be letting you go. In fact, it kind of perturbed Pharaoh, so he made it a little bit harsher on them, didn't he? He gave them, he said, you need to still produce the same quota of bricks, but from now on, what am I not going to provide you with? That's right. So the straw, you've got to go out and gather before you start your regular work. Just added to their day and to their frustration. Now, what you see here is the slave drivers that are mentioned or the Egyptian uh, project leaders, I guess you would say. And then the overseers would be Israelites that were put in charge over a group of Israelites to do the work. And uh, needless to say, the overseers were not pleased with this new directive from Pharaoh because they had to make sure that the people got their quota in. They couldn't do it. So what did the slave drivers do? They beat them. And uh, they were, of course, uh, the overseers went to Pharaoh and complained. Of course, that didn't do any good. He said, you're just lazy. You're just trying to get out of work. And so we're going to make sure that you're working so you don't have time to listen to all these lies that Moses has given you. And so they went to Moses at this point and complained. And where did Moses then go? <laughs> he went to God, didn't he? He went to God. And, and God uh, tried to comfort him. Uh, Moses says, look, God, uh, nothing that you've promised has come to be yet. In fact, the situation is even worse than it was before. And uh, God says, Moses, I've got it. No problem. You know, I'm going to take care of this. In fact, uh, I'm going to make your people my people. And I'm going to free them from their oppression. And I'm going to make sure they get the land that I promised to their forefathers. And uh, Moses is encouraged uh, by this. And he tries to take the message then to the people. But are they ready to hear it? No, the Bible says that they were so discouraged at this point they couldn't listen. Didn't want to hear. Sometimes that's the case, isn't it, with us? that we, the good news is there, but we don't want to hear it because of what we're going through at, at the time. And it's understandable. Uh, but they make, they seem, the Israelites seem to make a practice of this complaining, don't they? <laughs> and uh, God is not pleased with that. Then in the midst of uh, chapter 6, we have these uh, 15 verses or so of a genealogy. And you wonder why are they inserted here? 
Basically, I think what, it's done, what they're doing here, Moses is doing, is trying to give credibility and status to him and to Aaron through the genealogy, which the Jews held in such high regard. And he explains in this genealogy that they were descendants of the third son of Jacob, who was who? Who was the third son of Jacob? Levi. Levi. And so they were descendants of Levi. Their, parent, uh, their parents were Amram and Jochebed. And so I think it's God's way of saying, I've appointed these guys. And later on, you remember, it's the Levites who would be the priest. And so they were a part of that genealogy. Then here in letter D on the outline, you've got this idea of Moses faltering lips as he uses for excuse. Has he done that before? And I think this is about the third time. He said, and basically what he's saying is, I'm not up for the job. I can't handle it. And God's already given him several signs and wonders and encouragement along the way, but that was not quite enough for Moses. And uh, he says, look, God says, I've made you like God to Pharaoh. And, uh, and then Aaron will be like your prophet. He says, just, just tell them what I tell you to say. They're not going to listen. Uh, Pharaoh will not listen anyway, God said. So God's got this all planned out. He knows what's going to happen. And he just says, Moses, just tell them what I tell you to say. They will refuse, and then I will show them who I really am. This is one of the recurring themes that you'll see in this section, that God wants the Egyptians to know who He is and to know His power. We often come up with excuses when God puts us to service, and uh, I've done that, you've done that, and uh, we've got to remember that God does not call us to something without equipping us to perform, right? And uh, he did with these guys here. And the power is his anyway, isn't it? Well, the second appearance before Pharaoh does not go much better. Uh, before he goes, God tells Moses, look, he's going to ask for a sign or a wonder to back up what you're demanding. And so what did he tell him to do? He said, take Aaron's staff, throw it down. What happened? Okay, it became a snake. Now, in my reading of the commentaries, this word used here for snake is not the same as the word in chapter 4 when Moses threw his snake down. You know, remember he grabbed it by the tail? It's not the same word. This word is a more monstrous reptile. And so... Uh, some scholars have suggested maybe like a crocodile. So it was more fierce than the regular snake as before, it seems. But even at that, I thought it curious. This has happened a couple of times. What do the magicians and the sorcerers of Pharaoh's court, what were they able to do? They were able to match that sign, weren't they? By their secret arts. I don't know if they did this by the power of the evil one or if it was a trick or a combination, but their 
the, sometimes we sell the devil and his minions short uh, in trying to use counterfeit signs to lead people astray. And it could be that that was a part of it here. Do you remember in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8, it gives us the name of two of those guys uh, that were involved in this confrontation with Aaron and the snake. Janus and Jambres were two of the guys that were involved in this. And of course, God showed His power over the others by having Aaron's snake to swallow up all of theirs. And so that God was in control. Now, did this convince Pharaoh? No, the Bible says, again, I think for the second time here, that Pharaoh's heart was hard. Now, that's a familiar refrain, isn't it? Through this whole episode, every time that God sends a plague, you know, we hear Pharaoh changes his mind. His heart becomes hard. It either says that Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh hardened his own heart, that his heart was hardened, or that God hardened it. And it's used that way several times. And you say, which one of those is true? Did he harden his own heart or did God harden it? I say, yes. <laughs> I think both are true. God knew his temperament. God knew his mindset. And he was going to use that for his purpose, to show his glory. So he just gave him more reason to harden further and provided that. And I think sometimes God does that. If you will, for just a minute, let's go over to Romans chapter 1. I think beginning at about verse 15. And it'll give you some thought about this hardening of the heart. And uh, Romans 1 in verse 15. You recall in this chapter that the Apostle Paul is trying to convince us that the whole world is under sin. And... Uh, in the first two or three chapters here in Romans. And he's trying to show that a large part of the world had gone astray and the reasons behind that. And uh, he talks about in verse 15 that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. So he's shown us his eternal power and his divine strong or, or power. And uh, God says we ought to be able to see that and there's really no excuse not to know that he is God. And it says there at the end of verse 20, so the people are what? Without excuse. There's no excuse for not acknowledging the Creator. Now, you may not know about Jesus at that point, but you know there's a Creator and you see His power and you should acknowledge Him and you should give Him thanks. And they were not doing that. So look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but became futile and they're thinking. So what did he do in verse 24? God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. What did he do in verse 26? 
Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lust. Then in verse 28, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness. Then skip down to verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. We see that in the world today quite often, don't we? Of those who think they're above God and His way, and they're going to do it their way. And I think God just says, okay, if that's the path you want to go, I'm going to make it easy for you to go down that road. And you're going to get deeper and deeper in your own depravity. And so I think that's kind of what's going on here with Pharaoh. God didn't make him have a poor attitude, but since he had one, God was going to use him. And he will do that. Well, let's go to the plagues now, the ten plagues, beginning chapter 7 and verse 14. Uh, God is going to take this, escalate these plagues uh, in a progression so that things become worse and worse for Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Now, did God know that it was going to take ten? Sure He did. And uh, He's got this set up. He's already told Moses before he went, he's not going to listen to you. He's going to harden his heart. And I've got this all done because I want to bring glory to my name. And sometimes we, I think in our culture, we kind of repulsed by such harsh treatment. But this is God, you know. He knows exactly what we deserve. And uh, He knows what it's going to take to get the attention and uh, he knows exactly how sinful these folks are. And so these are appropriate. And God uses harsh judgment sometimes to accomplish his purpose, doesn't he? Well, the first thing he does is he has Aaron uh, strike the Nile and it turns to blood. As you read the commentaries, you get all sorts of ideas about what this blood really was. Was it? red sediment that had been brought down by the annual flood that came in excess this year? Or was it this uh, toxic red algae, as one guy said? Uh, was it some kind of natural thing that God escalated in His timing and purpose? Or was it really blood? And of course, I don't have the answer to that. I do know that it was miraculous in the sense that God transformed the water into something for his purposes and it was contaminated. It was at least looked like blood. And the Nile was very important for their economy, wasn't it? It was central to that. And so this was a blow to them. Keep in mind that God is, uh, most of the commentaries think that God is trying to combat all of the Egyptian gods. They had a God for everything. And so as he goes through this, all of nature and animals and stuff that they had gods for, he's showing the world, I'm much more powerful than your supposed gods 
uh, behind all these natural events. And so he, the God of the Nile is, is not uh, going to be able to stop this from happening. Uh, one of the uh, verses in Ezekiel uh, 29.3 gives us uh, an idea of the attitude of the typical Pharaoh when it says, here's his quote from Pharaoh, the Nile is mine, I made it for myself. <laughs> that was the attitude. It, it's not God. It's not that God has provided me with this. But since I'm a God and I'm providing for the people, the Nile is mine. And God's going to show him it's not. The second th uh, plague is frogs everywhere. This was seven days later. It was in their houses, in their bedrooms. Uh, this was an attack on the Egyptian god, frog god named Hequet. They had a frog-headed uh, God that assisted the women in childbirth, supposedly. And this was uh, an attack on him uh, because they thought frogs were very important. They wouldn't kill a frog. And yet, uh, we're going to see that a lot of the frogs eventually do die, right? Now, during the midst of this horrible plague with frogs jumping through the bedroom and everything going on. Finally, Pharaoh says, okay, I've had enough. Uh, will you remove them? Moses uh, says, okay, I'll remove them. Now notice, I think it's in uh, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 8. Uh, in the NIV it says, if you do this, I'll let, you, my, I'll let your people go. Now I read that a possible translation of that is, I may let your people go. So that makes sense to me if it is. It's, it's his first attempt to kind of show a little compromise here. And he's being deceitful, keep in mind. He has no intention of letting them go, really. But he said, I may let them go if you'll remove it. So they go to the third one. The third one is uh, out of the dust, God... Uh, creates this swarm of gnats. Uh, I read that this also could be lice, ticks, or mosquitoes. And all of these were very rampant uh, during times of the year in Egypt. Uh, I can't imagine gnats or mosquitoes everywhere, you know. Yeah, I can a little bit. I used to work at a job uh, out in Arkansas in the lowlands of marshy areas at certain times of the year. And I would get out of my truck to do a traffic count, which would take me a few minutes to do. Uh, I sped up my work when I did that sometime because there was one place over there in central Arkansas. I got out and I mean, there were mosquitoes just enveloped me. And I was trying to do this while I'm nailing that and watching cars and, you know, and doing this. It's just horrible experience. And uh, thankfully, I'm not prone to getting too many mosquito bites, but, they, but my sister now, she is. <laughs> and they would go after her. They seem to like some people's aroma or whatever it is more than others. But can you imagine having all these mosquitoes everywhere? And the officials of Pharaoh seem to see here that this is the finger of God. You know, the others, they could duplicate. They duplicated the frogs and the blood, but they couldn't duplicate the gnats. 
And some of them are beginning to turn and say, listen, these guys may have something. We can't do this one. They go to the fourth one and they got biting flies. This, we're not sure what type of fly this was, a stable fly, a common fly, a gadfly, or a horse fly, but nevertheless, they were biting flies. We know that. And uh, there were swarms of these flies everywhere in Pharaoh's house, but not in Goshen, where the Israelites lived. God made a distinction here. Flies only were tormenting the Egyptians on this case. So what is Pharaoh's response this time? He says, go sacrifice, but do it in the land. He says, don't go too far. And Moses said, that won't do. What we do is detestable. Our sacrifices are detestable to the Egyptians. And so we need to go out in the wilderness. And Pharaoh says, well, you can go, but don't go too far. So you see he's progressing here. Then he changes his mind. His heart is uh, still, you know, he's still uh, hardened. And so God sends the fifth one. This time, domesticated animals all die. Uh, at least most of them. We find that some survive because we'll see that later. They're, they're also killed by the hail and lightning, the ones that are left over. But horses, donkeys, camels, cows, sheep, and goats all die. So this hit them from two fronts. Their food source and their income were vital. But they were hit by a terrible plague and they, they died. But not Israel's livestock. The sixth is boils. I don't know how many of you ever, when you were growing up, or ever experienced boils. They're painful. Uh, when I was in junior high school, for some reason I got staph disease and I had, my mom had to, you know, bathe me in a certain type of lotion and medicine to try to help me with it. But I had boils on all different parts of my body. They're horrible. I can't imagine having them all everywhere. And these, these people did have them. The Egyptians had them. In fact, it got so bad that his assistants couldn't even stand before Moses and Aaron because they were hurting so bad. All right, and then seventh, uh, he sends hail and lightning. This is probably in the January, February area where uh, flax and barley were in bloom, and so they were destroyed by this terrible storm. The, uh, we read, though, that the wheat came later, and so it probably survived this, uh, and God took care of that with the next one, the locust, right? So uh, their livelihood is going down the drain. Uh, and it says here, after the hail and lightning, that said, God says, I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this very purpose, that I might show my power. And so what did Pharaoh said? Well, this is the first time he acknowledged being in the wrong. He said, I've sinned, I'm in the wrong. Pray for me. How serious was he? <laughs> Probably not too much. Uh, I read that this was like sort of a legal language here. It was not really heartfelt. It was like admitting, yeah, I messed up. I made a mistake. But uh, still, after this, his heart is hard and he changes his mind. 
So God sends locusts, right? And this is probably in the March, April time period. And the locusts took care of everything that was not wiped out by the hail and lightning. And then uh, the ninth plague was a period of darkness. It says, in Egypt, no one can move about for three days. Now, people tend to get more depressed in dark periods, don't they? And this was utter darkness, it seems. In Goshen, they had light, but not in Egypt. And so I, going around in, for three days in complete darkness, they seem to be lost. And, and so he says, okay, I'm tired of this. He says, go, uh, go and sacrifice and take everyone with you, but do not take your flocks and herds. And again, a series of progressive compromises. He figured if they didn't take their flocks and herds, they'd have to come back, right, for that. And, and of course, Moses said, no, that won't do. We've got to have them to sacrifice. And so... Uh, he did not give in to the lies here of Pharaoh. So, at this point, Pharaoh and Moses are both out of their mind, angry at each other. <laughs> the Bible says, as he was leaving, that Moses was hot with anger. It's like his nostrils were flaring, is the idea. And so, uh, Pharaoh says, don't come back. If you do, you're going to die. And so Moses gives him one last parting shot. He says, okay, about, men, uh, about midnight, every one of the firstborn males in Egypt are going to die. Animal and human, from slave to your own household, will die. The worst one yet. And, uh, and so you see this progression of, of lying and deceit on the part of Pharaoh. One lesson I think maybe that we can learn from that is not to give in to the devil's little deceitful schemes where he'll say, okay, you know, I'll let you do this, but don't just do it halfway. And we've got to just take God for his full word, don't we? And go with him and uh, not give in to these compromises. All right, we've got to hurry on through here to get to the Exodus and the parting of the Red Sea. In chapter 12, you've got uh, the Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread are introduced. Uh, and God just says, look, I'm fixing to do something here. I'm fixing to kill the firstborn at midnight. And this is going to be your first Passover. So he starts setting up the way they're going to celebrate it even before it happens and gives them the restrictions that they need to apply during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and so on. And he says, this, as far as religious days, this is going to be your first month for now on. They had an agricultural calendar, which was uh, different, but he says, as far as this month is concerned, uh, it's going to be Nisan or Aviv, and it's going to be your most important religious calendar, uh, calendar and it will be in regards to the Passover and so they start to celebrate 
that for, and he wants to make it a lasting ordinance, uh, one, a seven-day period where they don't work on the first day till the, and the seventh day, and they can't eat what during that period of time? No yeast, right? No yeast during that period of time. And if it was very serious, because if you didn't do it, God's going to come down on you and you're going to be cut off. Now that cut off could mean that God's going to separate you or it could mean He's going to kill you. You need to celebrate this the way that God has designed it to be. And then we move to Roman numeral 5, the actual exodus during the night. Pharaoh and everybody in Egypt's wailing and grief. It's everybody, they see death everywhere. You remember the, uh, God had instructed uh, the Israelites to put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And the Bible says that God would not permit the destroyer to come into your house if you had blood on the doorpost. And so you would be spared. And so... I want you to celebrate the fact that your firstborn were preserved through all of this. And I want you to do it each year and tell your children about it. This gives you a chance to tell your children about what God has done. And we should take advantage of those times too when we celebrate things, right? Why do you do this, mom and dad? Why do we have communion? Why do we do this particular thing? It's a concrete way of showing what God has done for us. And we need to be able to take those opportunities to explain them to our children. The Bible says that he said, okay, I've had enough. Get up and get out of here. Take everything with you. Of course, he later changes his mind, doesn't he? But God makes the Egyptians favorably disposed and they give gifts of silver, gold, and clothing to the Israelites as they leave. The whole community takes off. Probably about 2 million folks after 430 years of oppression and slavery finally leaving. You know, we read that and we know the whole story, but they keep in mind several generations live and die without God acting, it seems. And so you can see where their patience is running out wondering, God, do you notice? And yet, he does provide them here with a way to lead. Then he says, Passover restrictions. I want to make sure that you honor God by, if you want to partake of this uh, Passover meal and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, I want you to do so with seriousness. Uh, no foreigner or temporary worker can partake. Only those who fully commit to the nation of Israel. If you circumcise your kids and want to be attached to them, you can take it. And the whole community did so. I don't know how we apply that to the Lord's Supper. I'll let you think about that. But uh, it should be something that we do in a fully committed way, right? When we partake. And then in Roman numeral 7, I want you to remember this day and consecrate your firstborn males in the realization that your animals and your young men were spared. And I want you to celebrate this each year. All right, now we're crossing the Red Sea in a couple of minutes that we have left. Uh, I know we don't have time to do justice to it, 
but they take off. Now, they don't go in the shortest direction, do they? They take off, and they, they could have gone up by the Mediterranean Sea northward and got there in a matter of 10 days to the Promised Land area. But he sends them down southeast through the desert because he said if they go that way, they'll run into the Philistines and war will threaten and they might turn around and go back. So I've got a better plan. It's going to take them a while to get there, but sometimes the Lord leads us down indirect paths, doesn't he? And takes us to some other place. They get there and it seems like they're hemmed in. God set it up so it looked like they're roaming around aimlessly. And so Pharaoh changes his mind, sends an army out there, and they come up there and they're surrounded. And the people are terrified. They cry out, why can't we go back to Egypt? We had it better. Why did you bring us out here to die? How quickly they forget. And God, uh, through Moses, says, don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. They raise, uh, he raises his uh, a stick and uh, the waters part. And they walk through on dry ground. And what happens at the end of this about daybreak? Waters came back, drowned all the Egyptians, and they saw all the dead bodies there. And finally, the Egyptians said, what was the result? The people feared the Lord and put their trust in Him and Moses. At least for a little while. <laughs> and that fades away too pretty soon. Now, I don't know. I've met people who tell me, and they're committed Christians, who say this was, didn't really happen. I believe it happened. I believe they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground and the Egyptians were flooded. It happened just like the Bible said it did. I don't see any problem for a God who made the universe be able to do such a thing. It's more than just a story. What kind of lessons can we learn? All sorts of good lessons. I hope that you can read through these and get some of them. I want to mention uh, uh, two at the end uh, by a guy named uh, Coy Roper from Abilene. And he says, Sometimes God guides us down unlikely roads. He'll give us detours, take an indirect route. He'll give us dead ends sometimes, appear like there's no way out, right? And then sometimes we go through stretches where there are dry places and no water. But yet, our response should be, we got to depend on God and don't be afraid. He's trustworthy. And it may seem like there's no way out. It may seem hopeless, but God's got a plan, and He will give us victory. We depend on Him and move forward. Philippians 3, and I'll end with that today. Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on towards a goal to win the prize. It's easy to get stuck in regrets of the past. That's something I struggle with a little at times. But it doesn't do us any good. In fact, that handicaps us in our progression to what Christ wants us to be. So there's a time when we've got to move on. There's a time we've got to take God at His word and trust Him and walk through the dry ground. 
to get to the other side. I appreciate you being here tonight and uh, your attention. And I think next week you're going to teach us on the Ten Commandments. The first five. First five commandments. Okay, good. Look forward to that. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you. Mm -hmm.